Welcome along to another Fanderson podcast. My name's Roz Connors and here for the next hour with what I hope will be another fascinating trip down memory lane. So what's coming up in this month's edition? Love em or hate em, the Super Space Theatre compilation films are part of the Jerry Anderson history. A rare sight these days, but we'll take a trip back in time with co-creator of the movies and former Starlog associate editor David Hirsch. Also... Hello, and may I, as Father Unwin, give you cordial greeting. Yes, a revealing chat with the much-missed and much-loved Stanley Unwin, talking about the supermarination series The Secret Service. Space helmet on, thrust checks done. Let's blast off. It's Fanderson Podcast number three. uncommon back in the 1960s or 70s for film distribution companies to want to look at other markets to sell their wares and possibly take popular television series and cut together two-part episodes making them into a 95-96 minute feature-length version. This proved particularly useful when selling material abroad. It wasn't though until the year 1978 that anything like this was considered for the Jerry Anderson productions and then we saw a full-blown movie come out called Destination Moonbase Alpha. This gave rise to something we know today as the Super Space Theatre and the first guest in this podcast today is going to tell us all about that. It's the uh, writer and author and former I think it's associate um, editor of Starlog magazine, David Hirsch, who joins me now. It really is, I've got to say, a privilege and a pleasure because I've never actually spoken to you before. And what I wanted to try and get a handle on today was the production of the Super Space Theatre because I know you was very much involved at the time with that as well as your role as Starlog associate editor. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, um, as we were talking earlier, I got involved with Super Space Theatre after uh, London, UK had done the um, Destination Moonbase Alpha and were about to do Alien Attack. I had been sort of friends with Bob Mandel, who was the son of Abe Mandel at ITC, since about 1976. I had gone down to the office to get information to write a, um, a paper for a college class and uh, we hit it off very well. And he was the one who was instrumental in getting me uh, a job at Starlog when they needed somebody to help with the Eagle Blueprints. So that became a summer job at Starlog. And while we were doing that, we did the Alpha Tech Notebook. So I was up at ITC quite a lot. And through doing the Alpha Tech Notebook for Starlog, I got to meet Jerry Anderson. And Jerry started asking for my help on various projects where he's trying to raise money for us uh, over the late 70s. And I thought, what a good idea if we do some TV movies for cable TV of the old puppet shows to try and get Jerry's name out there so Jerry could go to 
studios and financiers here in the United States and say, look, my product is still being enjoyed by new generations. This is why you should support my next project. Yes. We had a bit of a renaissance here in the UK in the early 1980s with re-screenings of Joe 90, Thunderbirds and Stingray that came about in 1981. And this was due to viewers' requests on um, London Weekend Television, as I recall, and the shows came back on again. But let's put it right, for the benefit of the listeners here, in the States this wasn't the case, was it? That a lot of the puppet shows hadn't been seen since the original broadcast, am I right here? Yeah, yeah. A lot of them did not run since they were originally syndicated. And then after Space 99 ended, I think there was one or two reruns on a lot of the stations that had originally bought it. They maybe, I think, four four runs of every episode. Yeah. But it slowly vanished, and except for coverage that we did in Starlog, there really wasn't much on any of his projects. And the puppet shows always had a bigger audience, I think, in England, in Europe, and especially in Japan. Mm. But the United States was always a, a, a tough area. So Yeah. But another thing that happened, David, that we have to mention that occurred around this time, yeah. this this new film came out in the cinemas called Star Wars, and it kind of well, reinvigorated yeah. everything. And isn't this how Destination Moonbase Alpha came into being? That, that was what, what promoted them to do it in the first place. But it, ITC was no stranger to taking episodes of their shows and turning them into TV movies. Yeah. You know, we've got... The, the only color episodes of Danger Man, which were turned into a movie. There's a, there's the Saint movie. All of their other shows became because the, the, a lot of these movies would be theatrical releases in countries that didn't have much of a television audience. Yes. So that's how they got a lot of a lot of the projects out. So it, it wasn't an unheard of thing for ITC to do this, but I think because of Star Wars, they thought, well, here's something we can uh, push to get into the theatre. Yes, and then uh, Destination Moonbase Alpha, I remember clearly the poster appearing in Starlog, and it was just after Star Wars came out, if I remember correctly, for the yeah, timeline, timeline, and it was like, yeah. what's this? What's what's going on? And, yeah. uh, you know, our, everybody now seems to be interested in science fiction. James Bond with Moonraker was going up into space. Steven right. Spielberg was making Close Encounters. We even mm-hmm. were hearing that the Star Trek crew and Gene Roddenberry were reuniting. It seemed to be... Science fiction was taking over. I think Battlestar Galactica was another thing that came onto the TV scene. You had a brand new series there. But I'm guessing from your point of view, it was a way to try and reinvigorate the Anderson series and bring them out amid all this interest, this renewed interest in science fiction. Right. It was definitely trying to help uh, Jerry get his foot into the door for people who had not heard of him before. You know, even though there was this big renaissance in science fiction, his name may not have been associated with it like Erwin Allen or Gene Roddenberry Mm. in the United States. You know, Europe was a different story, but the money wasn't there at the time. The way things were structured was the, the bulk of the money would come from the United States. That's why when they did Space 1999 and to some extent UFO after the first series, 
there was a lot of influence from the ITC New York office because the syndicate, the money for the sales in the United States was what really they were shooting for. Lou Grade mm. always wanted that big American network sale. Well, at this point, I'm going to bring in another television series that was repackaged as a series of movies and just prior to the Super Space Theatre. But it was a television series, one that I liked very much indeed. It was called Thriller, and it was created by the writer Brian Clemens. And this was repackaged by ITC New York back around 1978-79 period. They sold it, they syndicated it, and I think this is the important things for fans who are likely to not these versions of the shows it netted them over 20 million pounds in sales in the first eight months of availability and I mean this is an astounding figure for a repackaged show that is quite some years old and it's being sold again making all that money well because you had the market now of cable television which couldn't be totally dependent on theatrical releases so they were looking for new product that would attract an audience, something that they couldn't see anywhere else. And this was before there was a lot more for cable TV where you had stations that would specialize, like the Sci-Fi Channel, which would say, okay, we're going to buy your 24-episode series. Syndication in the United States was ITC's main market, and you had to have a show of 100 episodes so they could run it five days a week without too many repeats. The shows like the early Anderson shows were easy to sell when they were fresh. Mm. But as became, you know, we were selling it to a station where they're going to run the show four or five times, more episodes, the more the show was valued. So a lot of the early shows, once they did their initial runs, were very hard resells. Yes. So what was the brief then from Robert Mandel of getting these shows back on the air? Obviously, there was a selection process. You must have sat there and watched episodes, deciding yeah. which ones yeah. would make it as a movie. Yeah, I, I looked for episodes that we could link together that had some kind of connection. I mean, the easiest one to do was the, uh, the Lunarville 7 yes, episode. Yes, that was a continuing story. Because yes. we had... Literally four episodes, well, three episodes that we could run up to Dangerous Rendezvous, but then a Shadow of Fear fit in nicely as the opening to that. Other shows were a little bit more complicated. Uh, I mean, the first one we did was Invasion UFO. Yes, that was and a combination of, of about three different episodes, about, wasn't it? About actually a lot more than three because we were being way yeah. too ambitious with that. I remember... Like there was one episode I said, oh, this is a nice little linking between this bit and this bit. Let's take a section out of that episode and just throw it in, you know, three minutes of this. So we were much more ambitious with that. But as the ball got rolling, everything became a bit more of a formula. Stingray, we were able to link four Titan episodes that worked well. And then we did four non-Titan episodes, but found footage where we could have him say that he's telling all these other people come in and, you know, create this mischief against Marineville. So things like that would work. Uh, of course, the two fire flash episodes of Thunderbirds were great little pairings. The one thing I, I in hindsight, I, I kind of thought I missed the boat on was utilizing the, the flashback episodes. Right. Which would have been a lot easier to take and just put in the entire episode that they were doing instead of this abbreviated version. I see what you're saying, yes. 
but I hated the flashback episodes always <laughs> because it was like this little framing story that really meant nothing. And they were just going to use clips to save money. So I kind of always turned my back on those shows or the dream episodes. You say you tried to avoid the dream episodes, but we must mention here Attack on Cloud Base in uh, the second Captain Scarlet feature because I know that's a very controversial one. Anybody not having seen it, it involves some strange kind of pyramid at the end and also a voice... An American Mister on voice. Well, I'm wondering. We, I'm wondering was, who that voice belongs to. I, I actually don't know who did the voice. Um, I'm trying to remember if that was my script for that dialogue sequence because I know I wrote an introductory sequence for Revenge of the Misterons. The uh, my original idea was to have this Misteron voice continue the story, as it were, from what was going to be the first movie, because we did Revenge of the Mysterons first. Um, and I, I don't know if Bob flipped it around, decided to use it at the end. I think the Pyramid video was something I think they just did in post when mm. they were doing all the other video nonsense. Um, so it was your idea, though, to change the ending of Attack on... Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I always felt that episodes that ended in a, as it was a dream sequence, were kind of a letdown. I thought, you know, it's, of course, it's the nature of episodic television because, again, we've talked about syndication. Attack on Cloud Base could have been an episode broadcast, episode two yeah. of the show at some point somewhere. And you can't have Cloud Base, you know, really gravely injured. It could have been the final episode of the series and gone out that way. But they always had anything that they wanted to do to that level had to have an out, like War Games. Again, the base couldn't have been so badly destroyed and then continue on next week as if nothing happened. Nowadays, with, with shows being serialized, this could have lasted for four or five episodes with the base uh, teetering on destruction. Couldn't do that. And I guess as a kid, it always bothered me that, you know, they would do these dream sequences. You'd, you'd go up to this episode, oh, this is what a great story. Oh, this is so good. And oh, it never happened. So I, I just, I just kind of like, I think that was my intention to do it and um, kind of cut that out. I think we did that. Didn't we do that on another episode too? Oh, um, the opening episode of Joe 90. Oh yes, that's, that's a, that's a, right. that's a made up story as well, isn't it? Right. It was a made up story and we just kind of took it out that um, uh, we had um, them saying that's what could have happened. No, it actually happened, the story. I just thought that played well into the overall scheme of, of the movie. So uh, that was kind of a choice on my, I mean, yeah, it, uh, as you've said, some people love them to stay exactly the way they were. I, I think in this case, because we were doing an edit together, I, I felt I had a little bit more mm. discretion as to presentation because I chiefly wanted to keep the stories intact, but make them blend one into the other as if they were always intended to be one continuous story. So if we didn't have episodes that kind of leaned into each other, like um, uh, Crater 101 and Lunarville 7, I didn't want it to see the transition to be as jarring, just for presentation purposes. Uh, I know with Invasion UFO, it was made up mainly of three episodes, 
but there were really other little bits that were added in. One bit I did think that worked very well with Invasion UFO was an inclusion of the United Nations Conference from right. Confetti Check AOK. Having that link, a little piece of identified, the beginning teaser sequence of identified, to updating it then 10 years later. The jump is more jarring watching that in the original episode version. You've kind of made it more subtle in the Super Space Theatre version by yeah, having, that, having that, that conference that was, there. Yeah, that was an early on decision on my part because mm. I kind of, after watching the episodes, I thought, well, this really works. It does work very well. Well, to include it and, and makes the transition much better. I mean, as an episodic episode going from the teaser to the main episode and jumping uh, isn't as jarring. It, it was a unique way of storytelling back then because you didn't have shows do that kind of transition. Uh, but a lot about UFO was unique uh, to the time. I just, I think that's how I started the ball rolling with picking from other episodes was I said, I really would like to include this. I think this works better. And then we decided, okay, we got to going into the final episode well, where Paul Foster is a major character, but he hasn't been up to that point. And then we found footage from one episode. ESP, isn't there. it? Oh, right. You've been in hospital. Oh, okay. There he is. Meet, meet our new character. And, um, we because the first that was our first film and it was more of a learning experience we had more time to play around until bob did the pre-sale to cable and it went out without the uh final ending now that's that's something we've got to pick up on here isn't it because we've there are two actual endings to invasion ufo out initially with sid spinning off into space and we were supposed to come back to the funeral sequence and he forgot to include it because he had to deliver it to the cable network. And it actually, I think that version got released on video cassette in the United States. And here uh, in the UK too. Right. And then when it went into the syndication package of Super Space Theater, he tagged on the funeral ending. Yes. Did you find you had a lot of late nights with Robert watching this stuff? I bet you saw started, more than... The funny thing was we started doing that where I would go over to the office in, in the late afternoon after finishing at Starlog and we'd sit and watch four or five episodes in... They had two screen rooms, a big one and a small one. And we sat in the small one because that was the one where it was easier to key up the films. And after a while, it was like, this is going to take us a long time. So I would give him a list of episodes. I'd pick them up on a Friday, take them back to Starlog. And then on Saturday and Sunday, I'd come into the Starlog office and sit in our screening room there and watch the episodes until I, uh, until I made up a log of which way they would go. And then one of the mandates he gave me was the episodes had to run about 95 minutes. Right. Because even though we were selling to cable, eventually they thought they'd syndicate it to commercial television and they wanted them pre-cut down to a specific length for commercials. So I had to then decide what footage could go because there were, there were certain episodes with padding that we could cut some scenes out that really didn't move the plot along. And I'd sit in Starlog literally with scissors and uh, editing tape that I got from uh, one of the big uh, photographic 
stores in Manhattan. And we had a, a little cheap editing deck at Starlook. And I patched together a six, these 16 mil, mil prints that they loaned me till I got the right lengths. And then they would take, he would take those over to mm. the company that would do the transfers and they do the editing digital. Well, digitally at the time was on, it was like video editing. Now it sounds from what you're describing here, David, that you're almost like a Mr. Spielberg character here or George Lucas. You were the director and you're sitting there on an editing bench. You're making your work print or your cutting copy right. as we would call yeah. it here yeah. in the UK. And yeah. you're, you're, you're getting all the timings right for all these things on the 16 mil prints that you've got. When it came to actually editing them they were done on video and obviously they were done from 35 millimeter prints yes once once we knew what episodes we wanted bob would then call the lab in the uk and have brand new 35 millimeter prints struck and he would also get the uh untitled sequences oh yes the textless the versions yes the textless version because they existed simply for the foreign versions so that was one of the things that itc always rain, uh, maintained in their library and we were able to then uh, they would uh, transfer them to video and then do the he would do the editing at usually companies in manhattan i only i think at one of the editing studios one day most of the time he would be doing it while i'd be working at starlog yes. so who who is gunter glinka i see this he name was, popping up on them the and the i guy think who actually did the physical gunter glinka what a name <laughs> i know i know and um, once it was turned over to them I actually didn't see the final episodes until they were done. Hmm. Uh, so they also used it, something called super space stereo, didn't they? On them, it was some, it was some way to sort of manipulate the audio to also almost make it seem stereo. But back then, we didn't have too much stereo video equipment, so I've never actually heard the episodes in anything remotely like the stereo. I mean, even when you look at the um, uh, the, some of the DVD transfers, like uh, the Joe 90s on the um, mm -hmm. network box set, I don't hear anything unique to it. The real change was, you know, everyone knows that Bob put in a lot of video effects. Yes, that's uh, a controversial topic, isn't it? That was not my idea. I didn't like it. I, I hated the video title because I, I, I thought it was so abrupt with cheapened it a bit didn't it the video effects kind of cheapened the look of the yeah, programs yeah you know it was definitely an 80s thing as as mm. some people would say and they got a write-up in videography magazine because they thought it was groundbreaking but <laughs> that was because it was something new back then so it's companies uh, like cine contact and film right and dolphin yes. animations wasn't it in yeah. new york yeah it did a lot of that video animation for it, titles and of course, the other thing that I had no actual say over was Bob loved to just put in wall-to-wall -wall music. From yes. Start to now, why was that? Why was he of manner to want to do that? Is it because that was the way it was done in Star Wars, perhaps? No, I think it was the Warner Brothers cartoon effect. Right. After you know, car animated cartoons have to have music from start to finish. Um, like wallpaper. Right. Where, where Barry always scored the shows like they were live action. He knew the value of no sound, no mm. music at, at a point, dramatically. 
what what happened was when they did Invasion UFO, they needed music for certain things, the titles, some, mm. some transition and that, stuff. And that and wasn't we Barry's, have, was it? That wasn't Barry's music. It wasn't Barry's. They basically put, picked stuff from a library. And, I, you know, uh, Barry was appalled when I told him about it. And I said, well, can you supply us with music? And Barry went and copied his tapes on the episodes that we were using. And he sent Bob Mandel all these reel-to-reels. He sent me cassettes as reference copies. And I thought, well, okay, so Bob can cherry-pick the music he needs to cover at some editing portions and make up new main titles if he needs to. Well, Bob did more than that. He just used everything. Somewhere on one of Barry's tapes, he had that that weird yellow submarine Thunderbirds Oh, march, gosh, yes, I remember that. For all weird things. And uh, there were a bunch of other other odd things. I mean, the one thing that I, that I had a say in is I thought for Incredible Voyage of Stingray, it would be fun since we had to stretch out the main title with additional credits to use the uh, single version, which right. which we did because ITC had the rights to the music. Where it got dicey was when we did Cosmic Princess because there was some really twisted legality with Derek's music. Oh, Derek Wadsworth, yes, of course. Derek was also in a a kind of legal battle with ITC over uh, royalties because there was some mess with how how the publishing was done. And um, they ended up using Barry's music in Cosmic Princess with (laughs) Derek's. So before Network did their Seat of Destruction with Barry's music, we did it first. (laughs) <laughs> which was weird, which really was weird, but it showed you what the show would have been like had Barry scored series two. <laughs> so all this work, it uh, happened around uh, the end of the 70s. I think the last one or two of them were done about 1981, 82. And strangely right. enough, I've seen one that seems to turn up as part of the Super Space Theatre, but it isn't a Jerry Anderson production, but is getting lumped in with it. It's something called Legend of the Champions. That's yeah, I didn't even know about that until I was when we were doing the book for uh, Fanderson and it was mentioned to me I was like really I didn't know that and uh, Bob must have done that after I, I, I left Starlog in late 82 to go back to college and um, he must have done it sometime after that because yes. I didn't even know Yes, I think it was the last one that was actually done. Now, the list of ones that I actually have got here that uh, I'm sure fans will remember, I've got Thunderbirds to the Rescue, The Incredible Voyage of Stingray, The Amazing Adventures of Joe 90. I'm just going to stop off on that one because I do believe you had a few issues with that, with Joe 90 actually firing the pistol. Yeah, well... In the around the 1980s, a lot of new regulations came in on children's television, a lot of restrictions. And one of them was children can't be shown holding a gun. They can't, you know, nothing with a gun. So I had to pick Joan Andy episodes where, excuse me, he never used a gun. You know, so we couldn't use, you know, uh, the one where he, he kills Coletti in gold <laughs> blood, you know. I, ha- I had to look for episodes that I could work around that. And, uh, you know, at least for the first episode, it was easy enough to just cut the gun reference out of it. 
It's so for a secret so agent, really you'd expect a secret agent to, to have right. a gun, wouldn't you, and to be able to shoot but straight. But they really and... wanted Joe 90 in the package because Joe 90 had never been seen in the United States until that movie. Joe 90 and Secret Service were never broadcast in this country. Yes. Now, you mentioned um, Secret Service. There isn't a super space theater contribution no, there, is there? No, no. Is there any reason for that? And they just didn't want to do it. They just didn't think it was going to add to the package. And I, I also want to do Supercar and Fireball. And they thought, well, they're black, black and, and white. Not, yes. There was no col colorization yet. And what little there was was prohibitively expensive. What brought it to a close then, David? Because we've, we've got a nice little package of movies here. 13 out of this world feature-length films. Was 13 always going to be the target? Yeah, I think 13 was the magic number. That's why the original brochure that I have only has the Anderson shows. I think Champions was an afterthought. And then was added later on. And of course, yeah. the Destination Moonbase Alpha and Alien Attack, as you've said, were the two British movies done here. So they went out and were sold to cable channels and uh, commercial television, perhaps, in the US. We didn't get to see them here. We were enjoying the um, programmes in their original form, which, of course, is the form we probably all prefer to see them in anyway. But we did have, in the um, very early 80s, the advent of the home video machine right. and a company which i do believe was part of itc anyway was either owned by or owned by acc whatever umbrella company it was it is, yeah yeah yes i'd been to their office to uh they had given me the inlay cards yes the, precision uh, video yes and they started releasing these things and I, I remember getting my first VHS machine around about 1980 and then all of a sudden from my rental showroom they were selling off videotapes. They were doing rental ones and they were also selling tapes and for the extortionate sum of about £40 I think it was back in that day, I don't know how much that would translate to in dollars, there was Destination Moonbase Alpha. Yeah, CBS Fox Video put that one out here, and I think it retailed for like about eighty-five to ninety dollars. Mm, very because expensive. And home videotapes were super expensive. I mean, even a, a blank tape was over twenty dollars. Yeah, but there again is another market for the Super Space Theater. Yes. Then when we got to the mid-80s and uh, we had more budget labels coming out, they were re-released on um, Polygram Home Video. They had a, a label called Channel 5 Video and they started to appear for under £10 here or would have been about the same amount of money I would have thought in the USA, probably about $15. So a lot cheaper, a lot more affordable. Yeah, they when most of the other ones came out, especially the puppet ones, came out on... Uh, on a kid's label and they were like 20 $25 which was cheap at the time and some and unfortunately two of the space movies came out in a, a series called Sybil Danning Adventure Video oh, yes I've heard of these two Sybil Danning would introduce and close out the movies wearing some scanty costume and some very suggestive dialogue a thing of their time, perhaps, at Sybil Danning. I, I, you've got to think, who's the target audience here? And I think we think it's obviously young young men, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, 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 13-year-olds yeah. or whatever. <laughs> and, um, just going through puberty. Right. Uh, and, you know, I, I just find it um, kind of uh, interesting. That, 
Martin Lando objected not to the movies that we created from the episodes, but the Sybil Danning intros, which mm. we had nothing to do with. I don't know who sold it to that company, but it wasn't me. Well, Sybil Danning's <laughs> own comments I've read is that she was just topping and tailing movies that yeah. they were trying to sell to try and spruce them up because they were movies that on their own would not sell very well. Right. And I don't think they were actually made for sale as much as I think at the time they came out, it was the rental market was taking off. So, you know, you had a lot of the mom and pop video shops where people would go down and rent a movie for the weekend. And you'd have this suggestive cover of her and people go, oh, this looks interesting. Let's rent it. You know, mm. um, I, I think they were sold mostly more for rental than for actual home sale. Yeah. Well, from my point of view, they look a bit porno and I think better avoided. <laughs> yes, yes. Again, I, again, as you said, I think that was the market they were shooting for. Which is probably uh, probably the reasons the Landells objected. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I, because I, it's well documented that Martin, especially the first series of the show, Martin had great affinity for. He was very proud of the show. Uh, I think he felt that was belittling the product. So, you know, I, I could agree with him on that. I don't think they were too upset about the theatrical release because I think that was sort of a contractual thing where they were going to do European theatrical releases at some point. Anyway, it was the home video market because that was new and that was mm. not written in anyone's contract, which was why I think there was a lot of stop start here with releasing the show on home video. There's some company called J5 tried releasing space on town as individual episodes and they only got the first they only got four out and they were odd four episodes because they couldn't get i think permission to release any others yes there was something else that occurred just a few years later something called mystery science theater i didn't know about these until you very kindly sent me some videos across just um before we were talking and i must say uh mm. well uh, Mystery Science Theater started out as a local uh, show in uh, Minnesota in 1988. So for the first series, they did um, The Green Slime as their pilot. But the first two episodes were uh, Invaders from the Deep and then episode two was Revenge of the Mysterons from Mars. And uh, episode 10 was Cosmic Princess, which was the only broadcast of that film in the United States. It's never come out commercially. Uh, for some reason, it was the only one out of the whole package yeah. that was never released here. But uh, I think ITC just did some kind of package deal where, in, where these these films were picked up by them. And they just, you know, would make riff of movies they considered bad or movies that they could make fun of. The early first season, the Minnesota ones, except for bootlegs that floated around on the internet uh, are not commercially available simply because mm. I don't think they think they're as funny as their later shows because most of the uh, humor was done off the cuff. But um, mm. it's kind of interesting that the first two broadcast episodes use these SSD movies. Were Jerry Anderson was... shows, yes. Uh, but right. I suppose for the benefit of the listener, anybody who's not seen these, it's 
like you're sitting in a movie theatre, isn't it? And you've got the silhouettes of the seats in front of you right. and the people sitting in front of you. And, of course, they're right. talking. You've got three idiots sitting in front of you making fun of the movie and talking the whole yeah. time. Yeah, which isn't a lot of fun, is it, really? Uh, it depends on the movie. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they, they did all kind. Of, for anyone who hasn't seen the show, they would do a lot of B-movies, um, uh, monster movies, but then later on they started to do a lot of really bad potboiler cop or, or uh, action movies. Um, in some cases they did educational films, which were fun. Um, but that was the whole idea was to just, I mean, you sit with a, with a group of friends and you could actually have fun, but uh, if you really, really you know an affinity for the movie you may find it offensive i, mm. I mean i certainly didn't enjoy it when they did gorgo <laughs> you enjoyed that film <laughs> i love that film but i think the idea of if it's somebody sitting there talking about the movie itself and its merits i i would expect it to be somebody here in the uk like mark commode some authority but i mean here with mystery science theater 3000 we're presented with what looks very much like a janitor commenting about the movies david yeah yeah well again for the people who listeners who have not seen the show are not familiar uh the, the format is this this guy that nobody at his company likes is shot off into space and he's experimented on by this mad scientist who wants to see what bad movies do to his psyche and uh in order to save himself he builds these two robot friends to watch the movies with them. And they just sit there and they make smart jokes about the movies, about each other. Certainly a lot of the Joseph E. Levine, uh, Hercules sword and sandal movies, they love to complain about the sandstorms as boring filler. But, uh, you know, I think if you sat with these and watched them with friends, I mean, that's how I saw mm -hmm. the show the first time. A friend of mine liked it. We would sit there and it's just like you're sitting with friends and watching a bad movie and you're all gonna make comments. Uh, but again, if you if you really love the, the film, you're going to sit there and go, this is really bad. This is <laughs> <laughs> well, over here, we um, saw releases of individual episodes of the said series that we've been talking about. However, the individual episode versions of um, what appeared in the compilation movies of the Super Space Theatre, again because of uh, some contractual issue, they weren't allowed to release here the proper episodes and they had to wait, I, I think, I until the late 90s, until the contract expired. Yeah, yeah. there was some kind of restriction. I, I don't know who created that restriction because that was a surprise to me. Mm. I had absolutely no idea it would restrict... Um, syndication of, of even the shows up to that point yes because we use them in the compilations i know that was one of the things that was disappointing to fans and i think we better talk now about initial reaction from the fans for these movies i mean i know what i first thought when i saw one of them i had destination Moonbase alpha on video and i was really happy with it i knew there were cuts i could see that with this scrolling text at the beginning and everything they were trying to mimic star wars but generally i was actually happy to have that and alien attack um but then somebody showed me thunderbirds to the rescue one of the new york ones and it wasn't i'll be perfectly honest with you david it wasn't from my point of view it wasn't an omg moment it was more of a wtf moment 
yeah. know, that, that because, you know, there was a favourite show and I thought, what's going on here? What they, what have they done done with it? And uh, it took a bit of getting used to. And I know it's something that we call Marmite here in the UK. You'll get some people who say they love them and some people who absolutely hate them. And I'm just wondering what the reaction was like for you having been involved with the production of these films. What kind well, of feedback did I you get? I personally was horrified with the end result. Um I, I was not happy and I, I find it kind of hard to even watch them because for my best effort of doing the editing so that the episodes would would make somewhat sense as, you know, a solid feature, the video effects, all, all the additional music just really kind of ruined mm. the pacing for me. I mean, when it comes comes to it, I'd rather watch the actual episodes at yeah. this point. And, I think um, we all would. I think th that's an honest reaction there. I think I, I honestly haven't even watched the Joe ninety uh, compilation that's on the network Blu-ray box set. I did watch the UFO compilation they put together because they remastered the whole thing, mm. which was interesting to see it in the letterboxed format. Because it's interesting because I, I watched most of the shows zoomed in slightly so it fits onto a widescreen TV, right. even though it cuts off the top and the bottom. Because if you, if you notice from Thunderbirds on, almost all the shows really do look like they were shot to go into that format. It's, it's, it's all the, all the uh, cameramen seem to have that in mind that we may have to format it for theatrical release. Mm. So it, it works really well. Now, so when Network did that, I thought it still looks great. It was weird because I, I kept hearing a lot of the tracking music in my head when they get to scenes where they yes. don't have it because they couldn't license some of the minor stuff. They were able to only mine it, put in the uh, opening and closing titles because I think that came from the Chapel Library. I don't know where they got some of the other little bits and pieces. I know one was a John Scott piece. Yes, I do. I do know. I, I know no, Destination Moonbase Alpha was Mike Vickers, I do believe. And yes, and the name yes. Oliver Onions pops up as well, <laughs> which uh, is Oliver to do Onions with Italy. A lot, a lot of ITC movies. For some reason, uh, whoever put them together seems to like adding his song. <laughs> so I don't know, maybe ITC had something to do with publishing his stuff in the UK. That's how they got it. Yeah. Well, let's run through some of the comments that I've seen over at Fanderson Facebook here. Somebody's posted sure. an image here of a Channel 5 home video blast off into adventure with uh, Thunderbirds in outer space. Uh, the cover boldly says, comments here, I used to have this back in the 80s, but no memory of music on it. I used to have this one as well and many others. You're quite right in Thunderbirds in Outer Space. The UFO theme is used as background music in at least one yeah. scene on the satellite. I do believe I remember that, David. Yeah, that was again, that was Bob just being... OK, well, blame Bob Mandel for that then. More comments here. It's one of the Super Space Theatre compilations from ITC New York. I have it on Laserdisc. So they weren't just distributed on home video then. They actually made it onto Laserdisc. There were a lot of Laserdisc. There, at one point, a lot of stuff did come out on Laserdisc. I think that was the only way that you could get the complete Space 1999 up to a point was on the Laserdiscs, because I think they were in a separate um, mm. category. And top, toughest one to get was the first one, which was Breakaway and War Games. I don't know why, but it does exist. But um, they, all the movies came out on Laserdisc from 
I remember. That's pretty well. It's covered a lot of markets here. Cable television, home video and Laserdisc as well. Here's another comment here. This is, an, this is an interesting one. Yes, they produce these. You'll love this word here. This is the first time I've heard this used mashup films for American TV yes. in yes. the 80s. I like this. But it, but it wasn't the first time because it had been done on a lot of other shows. A lot yes. of other shows had done it. Planet of the Apes. They produced, I think, five films out of the series. At one point, it was the only way to see the series because it was only, I don't know, 16 episodes or something. So they made a bunch of TV movies at one point. As I said, it was not unusual. ITC had done it for all our other shows. Yes. And uh, over here in the UK, it was one of the ways we got to see Man from Uncle in a series of movies. Yes, there were a bunch of theatrical films on two-part episodes. That's right. Uh, count yourself lucky you never saw the Stingray version. Sting missiles were replaced with frickin' lasers and they yes, insisted on incidental fun. music playing oh. throughout. <laughs> Part yeah. of Barry Gray's genius was knowing when not to use music. I, absolutely, I agree. Yeah, definitely had this. Think it might still be up in the loft. Uh, still have the video and still think of the cut scenes present in the actual episodes as filler. Still miss the music cues that I grew up with in the compilation movies. Now, there's a positive comment for you there, David, that some people are actually saying it was the first encounter they had with Anderson's shows and they're actually quite fond of them as a result of, from a yeah, kind I mean, of... I mean... A lot of people, I mean, uh, you know, the folks who did the uh, the three Thunderbirds uh, episodes from uh, the original recordings, that was their first experience, which was the TV movies when they were when they were kids, and because uh, they were not they were not run rerun on BBC until I think what was it late nineties or something. Yes, that's remember. right. So for a lot of people during the eighties and stuff, that was the only way to see them for the first time. You know. Yeah. So to an extent, they did serve their purpose. Like I said, I mean, if they if they had this revival now kind of surprises me, I, I would have been just as happy if they were dead buried at this point. But uh, if people do like them, great. If they don't, fair enough. Well, whizzing, I'm, I'm, whizzing down to the bottom of this uh, list here of comments is uh, somebody says, why isn't there a DVD of them? Now, people are still saying they want to see them and released as a DVD. You mentioned the Invasion UFO re-edit. It does still seem that people are interested after, after 40 years, really these movies having served their purpose a long, long time ago now. Well, I think it's it's just a unique way of doing it. It's it's. Um, I mean, when Paramount put out Star Trek: The Next Generation on Blu-ray, they released the uh, two-part episodes as sort of theatrical edits as separate Blu-ray discs because there was an interest in seeing those versions. Um, and it's just another way to enjoy the show. I, I, I actually wouldn't mind having a, a nice copy. Not that. Um, since they were all video masters, I don't think they're going to be too good. But um... That was a problem with them here in the UK because uh, at this point we should say that they were edited in an edit suite in New York and on a system uh, that we know here as NTSC. That was right, the right. standard system in the States, 525 lines. And we, right. had a, we had an issue with them. Obviously, to play them here, they had to be back converted to our system, yes. which is known as PAL. 
and it right. consists of six two five lines, and um, this made the quality of the, of the recordings look look worse than probably what they were in the actual edit suite. I remember that they yes. had a very strange transparent translucent look to some of them particularly the scenes in main mission in um journey through the black sun or cosmic princess they had this strange sort of glow and weird halos around and i think this was caused by the back conversion from ntsc to pal yeah yeah probably so how do you feel 40 years on looking back at these movies now david are you proud are you sad are you lonely? <laughs> <laughs> I, it depends on, you know, again, it depends on the movie and it depends on the mood I'm in because it, <laughs> as I said, I, I'm proud to have been involved with the opportunity to do this, especially for Jerry. It was a learning experience on how to edit things together. I'm not as proud of the final result because it was out of my hands as far as a lot of the post-production work. It's a bit, I'm sure a lot of people have to take that with a grain of salt as to any project they do when, when something is not completely what they envision it to be. I'm, I'm happy that people are still interested in it. A bit surprised too, but it was, it was, a, it was a chance to do, to do things because back then I was hoping to do a lot of stuff with Jerry. I mean, right through from five star five until he got to do Terra Hawks. And unfortunately with Terra Hawks, I, was not able to be involved mm. simply because he was on such a tight budget. He couldn't justify bringing an American into the production mm. the way he could with theatrical feature. You know, it was easy on five star five because they were look, looking to, um, you know, sell this to America and there was justification of bringing an American in to work as a consultant on it, but couldn't do that with Terror Hawks. Yes, there's only the script of Five Star Five that exists, isn't there? It didn't actually go beyond the script stage or the storyboard stage? No, it didn't go beyond that. Um, I had spent about two weeks on and off at, at Pinewood at Keith Shackleton's office, Jerry's marketing director, where they, they sort of situated me to do some script rewrites, you know, a little polishing on scenes that I thought would appeal better to an American audience, work on a couple of other projects for licensing, like a making of book and stuff. And uh, unfortunately, the, the project collapsed rather quickly within a week between a phone call of saying, we got the financing to the financing fell through. It, it, it was just such a, a difficult thing for him to, I guess any film to get started, but this one in particular. Now, you mentioned Terra Hawks. That was a product of the 80s. They um, made it onto video as a series of compilation movies as well. Yes, yeah. So here we are now, David, in 2020, and the Super Space Theatre very much alive. A brand new uh, promotional brochure, it's almost like, has come out from Fanderson, and you worked on that as well. Yeah, uh, Tim Mallett had been asking me for a long time to uh, write this book for them. And I, I just did, I didn't have time and didn't really want to write it as, a, as if I'm touting myself. And I kept saying, find somebody, you know, who would like to write it and they can interview me and I'll help out on it. And Chris Drake stepped up to the plate, did a brilliant job. He knew his stuff. He did brilliant research on the music and everything. Uh, <clears throat> and I was able to get my friend Mark Banning of BSX Records to scan the original artwork slides. So we have those 
marvelous posters included, the mini posters uh, from the original key art. So if anyone really wants to know the, uh, all the details and everything to pick up this book, I mean, it really covers everything. The, the, the thing I'm most proud of recently was Jamie Anderson gave me the opportunity to write three scripts for the Terrorhawks audio series, which right. was a dream come true because I had not been able to work on the Terrorhawks TV show. And just through a sheer coincidence, he gave me the opportunity to pitch a story for the second series. He bought it, loved it. And then when the third series rolled around, he said, what else you got? And uh, I had the wild uh, opportunity to write two stories completely in the dark without knowing how we were going to resolve the second series cliffhanger. And he just kept saying, just do this. Just put this in. Oh, this character's doing this. Put that in. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> and it was a wonderful dream come true to actually write a Jerry Anderson series. I know. It's a, such a splendid thing, isn't it, that you're mentioning that. it's a, You're talking about Big Finish Audio's releases yeah. of Terror Hawks. And... Um... There's your contribution to a Fanderson podcast today, David. And I've got to say thank you very much on behalf of all of the Fanderson team for sparing some time chatting about the Super Space Theatre. As you say, there's this gorgeous brochure that you can buy through the pages of Fanderson sales now. It's really, really colourful. Well, David Hirsch, um, former associate editor of uh, Starlog magazine, writer and author, good luck with your future projects. And uh, hopefully we'll speak to you again in the not-too-distant future right here on another Fanderson podcast. Anytime would be wonderful. Thank you. A real treat for you now, dear Fanderson member. We're going to go back in time and an archive interview that I conducted with Stanley Unwin star of the Supermarination series, The Secret Service. The interview was conducted with a series of questions and he sent the answers back via a tape. So I want to share it with you today because it's very interesting, very enlightening. I started by asking him how he got involved with The Secret Service and also did he know of Jerry Anderson's work beforehand? Yes, indeed. I was well aware of Jerry Anderson's previous shows, although I didn't follow them regularly because of my own work. I was not able to, and of course, video recorders weren't appeared on the retail market then, had they? But I did know about Thunderbirds, and I was immediately struck by the more realistic effect of the vehicle design and the propulsion of them, not to mention the work on explosions. You see, I had previously seen Flash Gordon in those old black and white days, and I thought that was all rather clever, but I couldn't help feeling that they seemed a very amateur thing compared with Jerry Anderson's work. Now, how I came to become involved in this uh, Secret Service? Well, I first met Jerry Anderson at the Pinewood Studios when I was doing Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Of course, it was a joy to meet the man behind this new approach to puppetry, which I believe he called Supermarionation. That's a word I could almost do in unweed, I think. Supermarionionation, all trickly half a load out Whoa! But still, I mustn't do that. I must be serious, mustn't I? Um, naturally, I was very thrilled to hear him say that he was interested in doing a series using me live in medium and long shot and as a puppet in close-up. Well, whether it was his idea originally or one of his ideas men, I don't know. But I knew that he was pretty forward-looking. 
uh, and I could readily have believed that he thought up the idea himself. Well, uh, the up-to-the-minute series at that time was, of course, Joe 90, and I wondered if perhaps that a touch of verbal fantasy added to the high degree of puppetry which he had achieved might introduce a sort of new dimension, if you like. Of course, I couldn't help wondering at the time if the speculation would be a viable and profitable thing commercially for him, and in this regard I don't believe it provided a very lucrative market, you know, such as the other shows provided. Because, after all, let's face it, experimental work is always a little bit dicey in show business, isn't it? Still, suffice it to say, I saw it as a creative experiment, and it turned out to be a most enjoyable period of film work for me, both on location and in the studio. And you ask, was it a good idea, perhaps, to use live people in long shot and close up into puppetry? Well, it'll certainly sound biased of me to say straight away that, yes, I think it was a jolly good idea, not only from the basic idea of uh, combining imagination with skills of puppetry, uh, like um, Mary Turner's wonderful work, she made all those puppets, you know, including me, but I really did feel that as, a, as the shots from the puppet changed to live, it could have added a sort of lifelike dimension to the series. There were no doubt some people who would say, yes, well, let the viewers imagine the lifelike qualities in the puppets, like, for instance, Punch and Judy shows and all that sort of thing. Well, maybe, yes, this, this is as it always has been. But, you know, why not experiment? I mean, take the great inventors like Thomas Edison. They spent hours and hours and hours exhausting himself with ideas that produced no results or little benefit, but eventually it was the combination of his creative thinking and logical skill, the combination of the two, that produced results from which the world has since benefited, don't you think? Anyway, I think Secret Service will become a legend in due course, even not in my lifetime. Now, regarding this thing that people call unwinnies, uh, this sort of odd language, it's something that can't be easily explained, because it's not based on logical construction of language. It's more or less imagery, you see. As many of us, especially young thinking people, can't perhaps just find the right word to express an idea, the result could be that the words just tumble out. You know, my old mum came home from work way back in 1935, and she was rather distressed. So I said, what happened, Mum? She said, I falloloped down in front of a tram. I said, falloloped, Mum? There's no such word. She said, I did, I falloloped, and look, I grazed my knee clappers. She was so terribly excited, you know, when she told me this. And some of you may have heard other people come out with strange utterings like this when they were excited. Anyway, I have. Um, I've, I may possibly have inherited this little facility from her. But, of course, one doesn't have to get excited just to do it ordinarily to make it of, of any use. What I do know for sure is, of course, that our language is a most valuable commodity, and I'd beg all young people to do everything they can to learn it well. You might say, well, if you like it so much, why mess it up like you do? Well, the answer is simply that I do it because it makes some people laugh, and I get paid for it too. At first, I didn't even try to copy my mum because I wanted to learn German. Why? Because I was a wireless engineer. I worked in a wireless shop and I used to listen to these foreign stations and wanted to know what they were saying. When I started my lessons, I found that my English wasn't good enough to learn the German grammar and I had to take English lessons as well. That's why I said, there's no verb to philolop, Mum. I'd been learning my English verbs, you see. Well, the answer to your question, how did I start to develop it? Well, I tried it out on my children 
partly because I was fed up telling them all those fairy stories, and partly because I didn't think they were listening anyway. Luckily, they seemed to like it a bit, but I wasn't sure if they were kidding or, you know, what children are. So I had no intention to develop it for commercial use. But one day, a BBC producer was at our house. Uh, that's when I was an engineer working up at Daventry, about five miles from here. And he heard me doing it on the children. And he said, if you can make an idea by talking nonsense, express that idea, it's a funny thing. I said, no, no, language and communication are much too important. He said, yes, maybe, but so is laughter. And he was the first person to, to use it commercially. That was in 1948, just 40 years ago. Well, it's just 20 years ago that Secret Service was made. We started filming it in July 1968, and we continued through until December of that year. Of course, I was never really happy driving that T Ford Gabriel amid all that traffic, especially in London Airport. By the way, um, Gabriel, that T, T, Model T Ford, um, was a very expensive thing to hire, you know, being as old as it was and such a famous little car. Uh, it was always brought out on a low loader to the location where we used to drive all around Burnham Beaches and uh, way over into London Airport. Uh, it was brought on this low loader to try and preserve it because being such an old car, you see, um, we couldn't afford to damage it in any way, so we just had to use it when we needed it specially. Well, uh, take London Airport. Gabriel had brakes only on the rear wheels, you know, and she didn't take too kindly to corner, I can tell you especially when being followed by a police car, but I must say that most traffic, especially I remember Rolls Royces used to give me plenty of room in London Airport while their Londoners looked, looked at me and Gabriel with a slightly amused expression, you know. And I believe, uh, I believe Gabriel was insured for several thousand pounds, you know, in case we damaged it. Anyway, I'll get down to my writing now. But first of all, I must wish a most happy future to you good people who love Jerry Anderson's work. Thank you very much for your interest and your enthusiasm in Secret Service. Uh, and I'll just give you a couple of words in Unwithese, and it's a goodly byload and deep joy to you all. What a lovely person. Stanley Unwin and we've got that legacy of that 13 part series The Secret Service to remember him by our journey back into the Fanderson vault into the archive with that interview there if you'd like any questions answered or if you've got anything to share then uh, do let us know over at the Fanderson Facebook page well so ends another podcast we'll be back with number four very very soon Thanks for listening. Thanks once again to uh, David Hirsch and, of course, uh, the late Stanley Unwin. I'm Ros Connors, bidding you farewell. Stay safe and we'll see you again next time. <laughs>